Welcome to episode 113 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmington, National Affairs Editor at Channel 10. And with me is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Are we going to talk about the elephant in the room, Peter? Is, is that that I don't think that it's appropriate to just ignore someone? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, more than, I'm more than happy to talk about it. Okay. So how are you feeling? Are you okay, Peter? Yeah, I'm, I am 100% okay. And I'm not surprised with where we're at at the moment that there was the sort of view in what I, I consider a, a loud minority rather than a majority who, is, who are critical of it. But it's just a simple opinion. I think it's juvenile to not interact with somebody when you go to their house for an event and, you know, you're there to interact with them. I just, I just think that's a little bit uh, juvenile. And your view is, uh, is not one that you hold on your own, as seems to have been the response across uh, some elements of social media. So there are plenty of people who say you're wrong and there are plenty of people who agree. And I've, and I've got no, no problem with people disagreeing, by the way. Like, it's just one of those things. I can see the other side. I can see that people feel like the way that he, as Prime Minister, has acted is understandable that it bothers Grace Tame, and I understand that. And I can see that a new generation doesn't believe that those sort of common courtesies matter. That's fine too. I just don't agree. And I guess the difference between, from, from what I've read in the reaction to my positioning on it, the difference between people who take the contrary view to mine is that I am okay about them disagreeing with my opinion on this, but they're not okay about me disagreeing with their opinion. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I noticed that our esteemed colleague, Antoinette Latouf, who is a, uh, who's an absolute cracker, a journalist at Channel 10, but also the uh, co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, which uh, has its stated goal is to try to get a much more diverse looking presence a presence that represents the Australian population and all its multicultural glory actually up on our TV screens. She put out a tweet which linked to the thing that you had in the project with Amy Ramikas and Carrie Bigmore. But I think there was the photograph of that sort of side-eye from Grace Tame and the Prime Minister saying, caption this. And one of the things which struck me is that Antoinette, I presume her follower base are chiefly those who agree with her aims. So progressive people, as indeed I agree with her aims very fervently. And I noticed that in response to the captions, there are a lot of people who were having a crack at Grace Tame. And I thought that was interesting. You'd expect that from some quarters, but perhaps not those who necessarily follow Antoinette. Yeah, that surprised me. That surprises me to hear that, actually. Interesting. I mean, my view for what it's worth is that I can't help feeling that I it's one of those moments where I realize I'm from an older generation. Hmm. I mean, journalists are always dealing with people they don't like. You know, because whether you like them or not is irrelevant to the process you've got a role to play. And I always tried to keep to the um, the military perspective on this. There's lots of people in the military who can't stand each other, of course, and they hold different rank. So the way in which they get around the business of saluting someone that you personally despise, but who nevertheless holds higher rank than you, is that you're not saluting the person, you're saluting the rank. And so in that setting, you have these roles where certain things are expected of you because you're respecting the rank. But I feel I'm a bit old-fashioned on this. Much has been made of the that no one made an enormous fuss. There was a little bit of a fuss about the photo opportunity that uh, Josh Frydenberg had with the Royal Commissioner and former Judge Hayne. And I made a fuss about that at the time, actually. I mean, they're not precisely analogous because of the separation between the executive and the judiciary under the separation of powers 
constitutionally as well as in terms of our institutions. So I suspect that Hain had concerns about what he saw as a photo opportunity as opposed to an event, by the way. You know, this was Grace Tame attending an event. This was Hain just handing over a document. He was concerned about the optics of separation of powers between judiciary and executive handing over this Royal Commission. But having said that, nonetheless, even though I don't think they're precisely analogous, I've seen that as well. It's been all over social media. I, at the time, was very critical of Hain. I thought that his reaction was profoundly unnecessary. I didn't describe it as juvenile because it was in a different context, uh, but I did describe it as profoundly unnecessary and rude, which I think it was. Uh, Not juvenile because, in fact, the motives behind it pertain to an intellectual understanding of the separation of powers. But yes, a lot of people, like you, I saw that. A lot of people drew the comparison. Yeah, look, and just for people to be reminded, Hayne had conducted the Royal Commission into essentially the financial sector and, and that he was putting back his final report that was greatly damning to the financial sector. But here's my thing about Hayne, is that I wouldn't criticise him because he was fulfilling a role and he understood his role. He'd been brought in plainly, it wasn't his first choice, but he'd been brought in for the photo opportunity with a beaming Josh Frydenberg. And he essentially resisted Frydenberg's invitations, verbal and nonverbal, to essentially get in on the spirit of the thing and shake hands and have a big smile, et cetera. But that's because he was consistent with his role, exactly as you say, the separation of powers. And so therefore, when you're fulfilling your role, then that's an an adequate thing to do. And I see it in other terms, like as a foreign correspondent at various times in the past, I have gone to speak to people who are mass murderers warlords. In fact, you go to some effort to track them down to interview them. And you might, in the course of the necessary courtesies, shake hands, sit down, drink tea, do other sorts of things that might be necessary in the process of it, because you're fulfilling a role to get to a certain end. Mm. So then it comes down to, I suppose the question is, did Grace Tame breach her role as Australian of the Year by the way she behaved with Scott Morrison? Or, and this is the argument I would make, she actually was fulfilling her role as a very particular Australian of the Year on this moment in the Lodge. So my defence, and in fact, my support, having reflected on this, I realise I'm an old fuddy-duddy about courtesies, people observing the courtesies. But I also, out of just sheer admiration for Grace Tame, see that she was fulfilling her role. And she didn't select herself as Australian of the Year. She was selected for that role. But she was selected because she had done this unbelievably, staggeringly courageous thing for a young woman of challenging the law in Tasmania, which forbade victims of child sexual abuse from ever speaking about what happened, even though their perpetrators could go out on social media and talk about it. And when she wanted to respond to it, they said, oh, you can't talk about it. That's against the law. So she is this young woman with some media allies, notably the Hobart Mercury and the 730 reporter in, for the ABC in Tasmania, challenged that. She broke down that law. They had to change it because it plainly was unfair. She is a change agent, and she was selected by other people, not by her. She was selected by other people to come Australian of the Year as a change agent. And when she said, when she received it with that speech, let's make some noise, she was saying with urgency and doubtless with the support of many people, not everyone in Australia, that this was a time in our history at which victims of sexual abuse and particularly child victims of sexual abuse were going to have their voices heard. And she is going to be someone who is going to be essentially a figurehead for that. 
And then what do you know? The year turned out to be one, particularly once Brittany Higgins revealed her allegations of rape within Parliament House. That became such a big issue for the year, other than COVID, it was one of the, you know, the enormous talking points of this particular period of our political lives. And Grace Tame formed a bond with Brittany Higgins as allies, supporters, and help. And Morrison was appalling. Everyone remembers his initial handling of the Brittany Higgins matter, the sort of somewhat infantilizing way in which he referred to Ms. Higgins as Brit, Brit, Brit all the time, as if she wasn't entitled to an adult surname and, and a proper honorific and all those sorts of things. When they have the huge rally outside Parliament House, there he is saying, well, you know, not too far from here, you know, people get met with bullets when they, what? And then there was the Kate Jenkins report. So Morrison was doing this uh, sort of deal with a political problem, get a report ordered, then sort of like, oh, thank you for the report. We'll have a look at the recommendations later. You know, we'll, we'll, you know let's make that all go away. And then when Grace Tame was going to be brought in to consult with the cultural changes that were needed, she says she was sidelined. And then Scott Morrison arranges for Ben Morton, one of his trusted fixers, to go in there and try and tamp down the talk that she was sidelined. But she felt she was sidelined. And it seems fairly evident she was sidelined. She's got every good reason to think that Scott Morrison has failed to lead the country in not only one of the great social things, frankly, that have to be addressed within Australia, but also the issues that she had been selected to be Australian of the Year to talk about and to be an agent for change. So I think there was an element of performance about the side eye and the grumpiness and all that kind of stuff when they got down to the lodge. I think she quite clearly wanted to send a message. But I also think it would have been a performance if she had had to go up there and say, oh, it's so nice to meet you again, Prime Minister. So nice to meet you, Mrs. Morrison. Isn't it nice to be here? Big smiles. Yes, what a wonderful year it's been. That that also would have been performing. It would have been requiring her to, as Amy Ramikas from The Guardian has written again, you know, be polite and play nice. And that's not her. So I've got to say that Grace Tame has, and I, I say this to my shame and her credit, has washed away. She's corroded. She's eroded <laughs> the fortress, the sandcastle fortress of some of my old fuddy-duddiness and made me think that actually, if you want to make change, for all my notions about observing the courtesy, I haven't changed a bloody thing in my life. And I certainly haven't changed anything much for the good. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a three cheers for grace on this. And if she leaves a lasting message, she'll cop some shit for it because she has for doing it. It's a, devi a divisive thing to do, but I tend to think that's what she was there for. And so she fulfilled her role. That's my opinion. Thanks for listening, PVO. Yeah. Whereas I just think it was rude and more and juvenile and, and mostly unnecessary. I don't, don't expect her to do a tap dance and, and all the pretense attached to some sort of big smile and, and some of the overtures um, that you mentioned to the Prime Minister, I just think have basic civility, which was missing as well. I think that there's a halfway house where you can go through the normal things that humans do without being overtly rude, which is what I thought happened, or overtly tap dancing nice, which I also wouldn't have done. And then, of course, there's the option of not going, but that's a, a red herring in this discussion. The issue for me is that I agree with all of that about how she got there. And I agree with the change agents element. I actually worry and believe that the level of divisiveness that a lot of these things create ultimately may do more harm than good. And we'll only know that as the years roll by, when we can reflect back on whether there's actually been change, as opposed to a totemic year that was divisive on this issue, which has seen people clash and disagree a lot about the way 
that Grace Tame and others have have acted, and, and I can understand it. It's interesting because I don't have a problem at all with people disagreeing with my view on this. I don't have a problem at all with that. But if you don't agree with their view, they have a profound problem with you disagreeing with them. And that I have a problem with. So we'll look back in six months, uh, six years and beyond and see whether there's been actual change to follow. And that will include presumably with changes of government so that we can therefore say, has that helped solve something? Because let's face it, Grace Tame has been extraordinarily partisan with her criticisms of this government versus sidling up to Labor. And so a change of government might bring about the changes and then her partisanship will be more than justified if that happens because, you know, you you pick a party that you think is going to get more done. But if it doesn't happen, and and my worry is that the more divisive it is, the less likely it is that there will be outcome changes. So the divisiveness has raised awareness over the last 12 months or so, but it hasn't achieved a single outcome. That's getting pinned at the moment on Scott Morrison because he's in power, fair enough. But in five years' time, if we don't have major reforms or major changes when you've had different governments, then the awareness of the divisiveness becomes a moot point and the key point becomes whether it has led to actual change. And my worry is that it has become so divisive, including a lack of civility in our civilization that is going to have a counter effect. And it's a very small moment in time, but to me, that just added to the divisiveness the other day. And it also became a distraction, frankly, from the real issue, both the real issue of what the outgoing Australian of the Year was talking about, as well as the real issue with where I think the focus needed to be on the incoming Australian of the Year, which is now the issues around disability and Dylan Alcott. And this just became a, a bit of a distraction to all of that in what I thought was a graceless performance. But unlike those who don't like my view on that, I actually have the civility to respect them having a difference of opinion. They just need to decide whether differences of opinion are something that are okay in a society like ours. PVO, thank you. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back. We're uh, we're listening. You're listening to episode 113 (laughs) of The Professor and the Hack. I've been, I spent my summer a little bit contemplating this election, PV, I've, I've got to tell you. And I've been looking, I've been studying the pendulum, I've been studying the numbers, the seats. And here's the thing, you remember 2013, Tony Abbott sweeps into office, the Rudd-Gillard years, the ruins, the destruction, the internal fighting, of the Labour Party, God, weren't they a joke? Thank heaven, Tony Abbott and the coalition have galloped into power. Well, they galloped in with a 3.61% swing, 3.61% swing. Remember that number. Because if you look at the electoral pendulum, even though the polls are good for Labour right now, for Labour to win, and of course, we all know there's no such thing as a consistent swing across the country. But if it was to go to a consistent swing across the country, they would need a swing as large as the Tony Abbott swing to get government in their own right. And an important point about that, Hugh, is I don't know you're saying this, they would need a swing as large as the Tony Abbott swing, which delivered Tony Abbott a thumping majority just to get the bare minimum majority. And that's part of your point, I assume. Yes, that's right. Because, I mean, they need 3.3% to pick up a sink. You know, they could get a swing of 3.2% in Queensland 
and not pick up a seat. If it's a uniform swing, absolutely. But if it's a uniform swing, that's right. You know, so I think there's people who are somewhat attached to politics and, and, and if they're enough to be listening to this podcast, they're thinking, well, look at, look at it. You know, the poll numbers are now so strong for Labour. Morrison seems on the nose. Certainly the gap has been narrowing with Albanese. People are sort of deciding that Albanese may not be Bob Hawke. He may not be any sort of grand figure, as grand figures have existed in the past, but maybe, you know, they can live with him. And this is Labour's time. Surely there's not going to be another election for Morrison. And yet 3.2% swing before Labour picks up a single seat in Queensland, which they would need to do to win. Yeah, the, and the only, look, the only caveat I would have on, on that, if you like, pessimism about Labor's chances generally as well as specifically in Queensland is something that I know you know, which is that often when the, the move is on, the move is on, and the idea of the uniform swing or the, even, indeed even the size of swings becomes a little bit of a, a moot point because, A, it's lumpy with swings around the country, but B, and it'll be very lumpy, I think, this time because of the pandemic, but we can talk about that. But the other point, the second point, is that when the move is on, you see double-digit swings in some seats as part of the lumpiness. And Queensland in particular as a state from one election to the next does have big swings in particular seats. I mean, even at the last election, which points to exactly why such large swings are now necessary for Anthony Albanese to beat Scott Morrison. At the last election, seats that the coalition already held they then won with thumping swings of anywhere between an extra couple of percent right up to close to 10% swings in seats like Dawson, which they were narrowly holding previously. And that's where the pendulum is, is interesting, isn't it? Because that suggests that if it's been done one way, it can be done the other. You know, it's the same argument that oppositions use to convince themselves that if they lost an election with a thumping defeat just three years ago, they can then win the following election with the same swing back. It doesn't always happen like that, as we well know, but it can. And so in other words, look, I'm still continuing to predict Scott Morrison will win this election simply because, I don't say with any confidence, but simply because as the incumbent alongside some of the points you're making, Hugh, I can see that being the more likely path, notwithstanding the problems that he's got. But boy, those problems that he's got make me wonder if this is that swing moment in time where the pendulum almost doesn't matter because the move is afoot. And the only thing to say about that is when the move's afoot, Labor wins without needing to worry about the pendulum, but it still doesn't win big. Yeah. And this is a mistake that I've actually made a lot of times and, and a lot of people observing politics make. We often tend to say that when governments lose, they lose big, whereas governments win the tight elections. That's true of the Labor Party in government, but the coalition in government when it loses doesn't always lose big it can lose small, like what we saw happen, frankly, in 2007, even though you would think it was a pretty resounding victory for Kevin Rudd. I think in the end, it was only seven or eight seats, his majority. And even less so when you go back to Whitlam, which everybody talks about now with their rose-colored glasses on, you know, the time movement and Gough Whitlam thrusting into power against the hapless Billy McMahon, all of which is true. But I think he only won with uh, five seats or thereabouts as his majority back in 1972. So my point is when Labor comes into government and the move is afoot, it doesn't necessarily deliver a big majority. Uh, it can be a slender one. But the fact that there is a move afoot means that those sort of seat-by-seat seat analyses of, of margins don't matter. And then this goes back to your point, Hugh. I'm, I'm, in a sense, I'm agreeing with you whilst not entirely agreeing with you. <laughs> Anthony Albanese 
doesn't necessarily come across like that change agent figure when there is a move afoot, even in a close outcome victory for Labor. He's, he doesn't come across fairly or unfairly like a Gough Whitlam or, or like what a Kevin Rudd was in the 07 campaign. I think Rudd was as vacuous as they come in hindsight. I don't say that about Whitlam. He doesn't look like the Bob Hawke figure either. I, as you know, we've talked about this in past discussions. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Anthony Albanese, but I'm not sure that the public sees him that way. And that's the unknown, isn't it? Can Labor win that one of those change agent, change of government elections without what we've come to be used to when it comes to the type of leader? The Rudd, the Hawke, and the Whitlam leaders, the only three times Labor have won post-World War II, they had a certain aura to them, even if in the case of someone like Rudd, that aura has come off since then. They had that aura. Albo doesn't have that, even though I happen to be a bit of a fan. One other little factor that struck me this past week is that Labor will reveal more policies as the election comes closer, but two of their absolute staples where they feel are on safe ground is real action on climate change, but not excessive, and integrity in government. So they're pushing this Commonwealth Integrity Commission. And I just noticed that in Queensland, with the resignation under a cloud of the chair of the Queensland, what they call the Triple C, the Crime and Corruption Commission failed, in fact, embarrassingly failed prosecutions that they conducted against uh, councillors in the Logan Council area of Brisbane. And then uh, there was another one that fell over just in the last week or so. The chairman has quit. I just have the sense that that business about having a, a commission, an integrity commission of some kind, which in some parts of the country is urgently the people that sense, yeah, let's get on with it. And Morrison's dragged his feet on it. That it's unlikely, I suspect it'll unlikely to have quite the same resonance in Queensland simply because of, you know, they've looked at their triple C and gone, no, no, that that didn't work. Do we really want one federally? So I want to throw another hypothetical to you. Sure. Let's say it goes to a hung parliament, essentially a haggle. Which I almost think is the most likely scenario, actually. Yep. If, I mean, irrespective of whether it's coalition or Labor that form government, if, if you said to me, walk through the proverbial door, what's most likely, a majority for the coalition, a majority for Labor, or a hung parliament where one side has to scramble together a majority. I almost think that's the most likely scenario at the moment. And, and possibly even more so, if more independents get up and we've discussed their prospects and all the rest of it, then we, um, we're, we're not overly bullish. Yeah. But so here's the hypothetical. It gets down to one of those situations where, as it did in 2010, it's going to come down to a handful of independents who, just, who essentially decide who the government's going to be. And if you look at the independents, obviously Zali Stegall in Tony Abbott's old seat of Warringah, Helen Haynes in Indi, which she holds only by a very narrow margin, by the way. People kind of assume that uh, after Catherine McGowan got in it and then handed over to Helen Haynes, but she's only holding it by 1.4%. So it's not an absolute given that she'll hold that seat. We've got uh, Rebecca Sharkey, of course, in Mayo. Mm. And then possibly you look at the Bobcatters and the, and the Adam Bants. We know how they're going to go. Possibly new independents. Allegra Spender, I don't think so, but maybe in Wentworth, maybe this Georgina Steele and Hughes. Andrew Wilkie. Andrew Wilkie will go Labour. We know that. You know, let's say Zoe Daniel and Higgins or something. But I'm really interested in the ones who are challenging traditional conservative seats. And they will surely have looked at what happened to Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, who held as independents traditionally conservative seats, but backed Gillard and were swept out at the next election. So these independents who are brought in essentially as an agent for change, we don't like this mob, by voters who are traditionally coalition voters, who do they go with? 
do they say we'll go for Albanese and recognize we've only got a short time in office? Or do they go, you know what, for all the noise we made about being independents, our electorates are fundamentally conservative, we'll go for Morrison. Look, I, I tend to think that the most likely outcome in that hypothetical is that none or not enough of them get up anyway. So it becomes a, a case of looking at the ones who were already there who get re-elected. I may be wrong in the case of one, but my, my, my broader view on this is that even if one or even more of these new independent candidates wins, they tend to win because there's a move on. And Scott Morrison is so on the nose that he loses those safe seats because of a backlash to independence in them, even though they couldn't bring themselves to vote Labor. That would mean in other seats around the country, Anthony Albanese would have picked up enough votes to be able, and enough seats to be able to form majority government in his own right. So I, I tend to think that the hypothetical never happens because the only way that enough new independents in conservative seats win their seats is because there was a move on in marginal seats that sees Labor get its own majority. Having said all of that, I could easily see a scenario where even if you do get one or two new independents and the current collection of independents gets re-elected, which I think is likely, I do think Helen Haynes is likely to actually increase her majority now that she's had a term for herself having taken over. Uh, and I think Rebecca Sharkey as well and, and all the rest of it. The interesting thing, Zali Stegel, the interesting thing then for me becomes which way do they vote? Because I, I don't think their decision is necessarily as clear cut as a new MP a, who is an independent in a conservative seat's decision might be. So, for example, I could see Azali Stegel or a Rebecca Sharkey or certainly a Helen Haynes all being prepared, uh, having been in their second or, or beyond that term as an independent in a more conservative electorate, being prepared to say, you know what, if in my negotiations with Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison, Scott Morrison is not prepared to come running towards me on an integrity commission and on climate change policies, then you know what? I think my conservative voters in this seat who are passionate about those issues like I am will tolerate me voting for Anthony Albanese as long as he guarantees those outcomes. So it's a, it's a little bit different to Windsor and Oakshot because I got the impression that Windsor and Oakshot took the view, firstly, they were rural electorates, which were much more conservative than perhaps a Zali Stegler or a Rebecca Sharkey electorate might be. But I got the impression that they just were voting for the personality of Julia Gillard against the personality of Tony Abbott, as opposed to any real policy. They then had a lot of policy muscle once Gillard got re-elected around climate change with the carbon tax and all the rest of it. But the difference here is that I think that the independence in liberal-leaning electorates who could support an Albanese government, were they to do so, they would be doing so because Albanese would have to say right from the get-go, this isn't about Morrison v Albo, even if you don't like Morrison. It's about Morrison having refused to give in on the Integrity Commission and give in on climate change. Now, the counter to that, of course, Hugh, is that if Morrison knows that the only way he stays prime minister in a minority government is to guarantee the Integrity Commission and is to do more on climate change, even if his right flank don't like it in regional Queensland, I think he'll do that. And that's an interesting one then for the likes of Rebecca Sharkey and Helen Haynes and in particular Zali Stickel. I think they almost become compelled to support the conservative side, which their electorate reflects over Anthony Albanese instead, if, and it's a big if, if Scott Morrison gives enough guarantees and certainty on the policy scripts that they believe both they and their electorate care about. Interesting. Thank you for unpacking that. That makes it clearer. We've got about four months, perhaps just a little over, before we're going to find out, Peter. 
and see what times we're in. And we got through the entire thing without really discussing COVID. And that's got to be pretty much the first one of those in a couple of years. Oh, thank God for that. Yes. <laughs> Great to talk to you as always, Peter. Stay well. We'll speak again in a week. Likewise. Cheers, man. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 